This is an interview with Alyssa Exposito. Yes. <laughs> with an X, I might add. With an X. Hi, my name is Alyssa Exposito. And that's uh, Y the X and not an S. So I get this question a lot, but I think it's a, because a lot of people think that the name, there's Esposito, which is Italian, mm-hmm. but mine is Exposito, which is Spanish. Mm-hmm. And it turns out um, that there was Exposito houses in Spain, so they were actually the last name was given to orphans, mm-hmm. so children that were abandoned. So maybe somewhere down my lineage, there's an orphan. Mm-hmm. But that is why it's with an X and oh. not an S. Alrighty. <laughs> yeah. So Alyssa, we've actually known each other 100 million years, which is kind of strange, right? Um, I've known you since you were a teenager. Yeah. And one of the awesome things about that is that we've seen each other grow. Um, mm-hmm. So you've seen me in a really sort of earlier version of me, and I've seen you make the transition from young, sort of high crazy, <laughs> crazy high school to um, young adult and now young professional. And you're a peer of yeah. mine here at the University of Miami. So one of the things that I'd, I'd like you to sort of walk me through is let's start with the event that basically has shaped my understanding of you and your understanding of you now. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the event you're talking about is me getting hit by an F-450. Mm-hmm. Um, I which was, is a truck. Yeah, which is an, a Ford massive construction truck. Um, and I was a 16-year-old runner and passionate runner and D1 collegiate hopeful, so division one collegiate hopeful athlete, uh, with the dream and the aspirations to be a professional runner. So I went to, uh, the Florida state track and field championships. And I came back that afternoon, very, very motivated and inspired to just get on into training, preparing for the next season. And I remember that no one wanted to run with me because everyone was like over the season, they were done. And it was the first time that I was lacing up to run by myself. And I remember feeling a little bit apprehensive about it, but I knew the route and it was just one big loop around the high school. So I didn't think much of it. And not until I started out on my run did I realize that this would be the end of life as I had ever known it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm running down. I forget the streets because I'm terrible with directions. But if you know where Havana Harry's is, I'm running by Havana Harry's. And the sidewalk is under construction. Yeah. So it's under construction. And... I make a decision quickly in my head. I'm like, if I continue this route, then I'm going to end up on the street. And I don't want to do that because that is a very busy street. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn around. And in that detour was the detour of my life. Because in that detour, I end up running behind Havana Harry's um, in the alley and just seeing where I had to turn, which was, I believe, Blue Road. And... That's all I remember. I remember just seeing where I had to turn and then all of a sudden waking up to these nameless faces that were men, then thinking, am I dreaming? Then thinking, 
oh my gosh, my mom's going to be so upset because they just kept repeating to me, you're going to the hospital, you're going to the hospital. And I had no idea what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember feeling very uncomfortable, no pain at all. I didn't feel any pain. So mm-hmm. I just felt, um, oh my goodness, I left all my stuff at the track. My mom's going to be upset. What is going on? And then they were like, can you move your leg? And I move it unknowingly and unbeknownst to me. I was like, of course I can move my leg. What are you talking about? I'm super capable. They're like, don't move it too much because you're going to bleed a lot. And then I'm like, oh shit, Mm -hmm. this is, this is bad. Mm -hmm. This could be really bad. Um, And then I remember pulling and tugging at the neck brace that they had put me on. Again, I had no the severity of my injury at all. And Little did I know that I was actually airlifted from West Lab mm-hmm. um, to Jackson Memorial Hospital. And that is when things started to get really real. Mm-hmm. And um, it all happened so quickly. And I think a lot of what the doctors told me and what I've been learning about trauma is that basically your brain, it's the defense mechanism that your brain has where it just shuts it down mm-hmm. and you either it's like a fight or flight, but you also could freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens is that memory just doesn't ever get, you know, brought back. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. It can, which mm-hmm. is very scary because mm-hmm. you never know when it could happen. Right. But all you really have from trauma are just like these glimpses, images, sometimes smell. And I, and I do have a, a few of that, but, I also remember getting into whatever room they were basically undressing me and they asked me, you know, standard questions. What day is it? Who's the president? What's Mm -hmm. your zip code? Where do you live? And I was just like banging those out. I was Mm -hmm. was like, I'm fine. I'm Mm -hmm. coherent. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have my consciousness. I have everything is like going. And then they start cutting my shoes and I was like, oh shit, like they don't make that model anymore. (laughs) And you're just like, all the things that you think about when you have no idea mm-hmm. how bad mm-hmm. your life could be, like the right. perspective. Right. right. And then, you know, before I even got to the helicopter, I didn't say it out loud, but in my head I was like, where's my mom? Where's my mom? Like, I don't know these people. I just need a familiar face. Like, mm-hmm. I want a familiar face. I didn't cry until she walks in. Mm-hmm. Then I was like, thank you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, finally. And then my defense is just, you know – unveiled and I was just so vulnerable and she comes up to me and she just kept repeating like a prayer, like, it's okay. It's okay. You're going to be okay. Um, and I'm just crying and they were, you know, kept repeating to her. She's been very strong. She's been fine. You know, her leg from what they told my mother, my leg looked like mashed potato. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was because the dually tires of the truck pinned Mm -hmm. my right leg and he dragged me six feet. Wow. So mm-hmm. there was that major injury to my right leg, but also road rash to my left leg. Mm-hmm. And then I had laceration, three lacerations to my head. Um, nothing happened to my face. Um, and then like a few scars and scrapes like on my hands because, you know, yeah. I was helpless. Right, right. Wow, um, Alyssa, I, I can tell you that being in the office that day, it was as if everything just stopped dead and we were all waiting with, with bated breath. Um, and when your mom came back and said, 
the madness and craziness of what had transpired, we all just, we were just in shock, the entire office. Um, but I think that as much as, as that moment sort of stands out, that's not what, what, what any of us remember. What we all remember is you being the first badass that I had ever met. Oh, wow. That's a huge honor. (laughs) Because you told the doctors, this is how we're going to roll. Yeah. Just share a little bit about, um, A, what they wanted and what you wanted and what you ultimately did to get what you wanted. Yes. So um, I think a huge part of my recovery was a little bit, not blindsided, but I was naive in thinking, you know, I was invincible still. You know, even though I got hit by this massive vehicle, I still thought, yeah, this is fine. This is just going to deter me for a couple of months, but I'm going to get right back on there. And I think that mentality of not really knowing how bad my injury was is what really saved me because it it really uh, fueled my fire. But I knew after the fact that the doctors didn't think that I'd be able to walk again. Um, in fact, my mom had to sign to amputate my right leg just in case they couldn't save it. Um, and I think, you know, in retrospect, like piecing this all together, I... I couldn't believe that there was so much about my trauma and my injury and my healing that I didn't really ever come to terms with until after. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that they they wanted me. I was immobile for three months. They didn't want me any weight bearing. Um, and I couldn't deal with that. Like I, I was like, "There's that's not going to happen. Like if I'm going to run in the fall – I need to be able to train, you know, and I, I did have like a huge moment of doubt and kind of like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this when I had to use the restroom. And I've always been a very independent person. My mom, my mom could even attest to this since I was in kindergarten. I was like, okay, you could leave now. Like I was never someone that really relied so heavily on her or my parents. Um, And I don't know what that is about me, but I remember never wanting a lot of assistance, even though I needed a lot of assistance, Mm -hmm. which now, I mean, growing up, I'm like, always ask for help if you need help. But then I walk to the bathroom with my with my walker (laughs) and I come back and I was just I felt like I had run a marathon Mm -hmm. and it was just literally maybe 10 feet. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was like, girl, how are you going to be able to run a 5K if you can't even go down the hallway? Um, but I think that moment I was like, I'm just going to be consumed by running. I'm going to be consumed by the thought that I'm going to run again. I'm going to like, I would go to bed at night with a certain playlist to just elicit the fact that I would be running or like what I would listen to before race Mm -hmm. to dream about running. I would watch like Steve Prefontaine movies Mm -hmm. just to be like, yes, like there is hope and, um, no one's going to tell me that I'm not going to be able to do this. And I luckily, my physical therapist at the hospital was a UM track and field hurdler who was um, training for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just had so many of these little things like saving graces that reminded me that, 
yes, you're here right now, but that isn't, that's not going to stop you forward from where you want to go, where you're going to be. Um, and if anything, these are going to make you stronger. Like, that's what I just kept reminding myself. I was like, this is just going to show me that there's nothing that could stop me. Um, it really is a case of if it doesn't kill you, it will make you stronger. Yes. Um, so what I would do is I would literally train using my walker. I would um, walk around the hospital. And then when I got home, like for 45 minutes a day, just walking and learning like what that was like. Because when you're immobile for three months or like in a certain a horizontal position for that long, your muscles start to atrophy and your body, while there's muscle memory, it almost is like, okay, what are, what's left foot, right foot? Like, what, how do I do this? So I made sure that I never really forgot how to take steps. Mm -hmm. Um, despite the fact that I couldn't really lean on my right leg. Mm -hmm. Um, and every time I was watching TV or doing anything because I couldn't do much, I would, you know, start working out the muscles in my, in my leg and my quadriceps and like try to contract as much as I could, uh, try to get myself to bend because my leg, it was just straight. Like there was no 90 degree flexion or mm -hmm. extension to mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just, to be honest, you know, when I think of all the traits that I've been characterized throughout my life, one that stands out that my mother has, and my grandmother and everyone, you're so stubborn. And I think my stubbornness really helped with my tenacity and my persistence to get back to running. Because mm -hmm. um, I remember those three months, I mean, I was already walking, but not clear to walk yet. So I still had to crutch around. And I went to the doctor's office and they were like, okay, let's see you walk. And I took my steps and I was like, here, I don't need these anymore. Like, why do I still have them? What's my protocol now to get stronger, to get back on the field? Um, and I think they were taking it back at that, but also a saving grace was not only that I was so young, but also so healthy and fit um, that it was very, it was much easier for me to get back. And I would make, my high school athletic trainer, who happens to be the head athletic trainer here at the university, Vinny Scavo, um, I, I was like, listen, I don't want a nurse to come to the house anymore because she's not challenging me enough. I don't want a PT. I need someone that knows I need to get back on the field like in two months. So we would do rehab from nine in the morning to two o'clock in the afternoon. Literally, he would crush me like with my range of motion he would have me on a bike for like 25 to 45 minutes and then eventually it became like running around the track mm -hmm. and he took my first two laps with me and I beat him <laughs> which I was very happy not, not to be like incredibly proud about uh but it was it was just like a great relationship that he and I and rapport that he and I had because mm -hmm. he knew my goals and again unbeknownst to me, he and my coach also didn't think that I'd be able to run because I was tiny. I was... How tall are you? I'm 4'11", three quarters. Holy smokes. Yeah. yeah. And then I weighed, I think, 92 pounds. Mm -hmm. And then after the hospital, I weighed nothing because of all the pain medication. I was just like, it, it didn't sit well in my stomach. Mm -hmm. uh, so they just thought that my body couldn't take that kind of force. Like, 
And because of my last surgery where they removed a third of my gastroc. Which is what? Which is my calf muscle. Mm -hmm. So basically that muscle is very, very important with running because that muscle is what helps you with your sprint and with your kick. Mm -hmm. Um, And since I'm missing a third of it, my body had to really, really compensate for that. So we had to make sure that all the other structures and especially my left side was significantly stronger to be able to hold myself essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And sure enough, after that extensive rehab and me being stubborn, I got back to that season to compete. Um, This is literally one season later. This is months later. Like it happened May 7th and I was running already by like late August. This is after a near death experience, losing your leg, having all kinds of people tell you not possible. Yeah. And um, to me, I was just like, I want to be able to do this again. Like, I don't want this to be something that hinders me to not ever want to do it again. Um, I want it to be something that one is a testament to my love and my dedication, my commitment to, but also it was you know, kind of nice to prove people wrong. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, now as I get older, I realize that that should not only be your motive, that shouldn't be the only motivation. But for me at that time, as a 16 year old girl, it was like my big F you Mm -hmm. to everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and such a big yes to me and the rest of Mm -hmm. how I was going to take the rest of my life. Well, I want to pivot and build on something you said earlier, which you said that I come from a household of really strong women. And I've met a couple of those women. (laughs) Yes. And uh, they are badass to the bone. (laughs) So as as you sort of help our audience sort of contextualize what it is about the women in your family, you're of Cuban background. It's not that unusual (laughs) Um, here, especially here uh, in our uh, Floridian uh, context. Uh, But what is it about the women in your family that you define as being especially um, topical for badassedness? Um, I think the biggest thing that I've learned from the women in my family um, is that no matter what tries to knock us down, we do not stay down. It's not something that we're like throwing in the towel and going to accept. You know, I come from parents that are divorced and my mom had to single-handedly raise four beautiful young ladies, which is also crazy and expensive and hormonal and all kinds of things that I, I can't even imagine ever doing. Um, but she did it with such grace, poise, and it was never the easiest of times, but, um, having her and also my older sisters kind of be like a backbone into my support was very, very vital. And also my grandmother is the strongest woman that I have ever known. She's Um, how old now? She is 80 and... I have just always seen her do things like she has never let. And I think she was the first woman that kind of introduced this thing that I'm not going to let my sex or my gender tell me what I should and shouldn't do. 
Um, granted, she comes from a very Catholic, religious, conservative Cuban tradition and culture. The <laughs> yes, but she was always someone that was like, I if I could read, I'm going to be able to do it. No man, I'm not going to wait for a man to fix things in the house because I could do it. Um, and you know, if I, she was always kind of just like, I don't like to say tomboy, but she was always someone that defied the norms, especially for the time. And she was always someone that minded her business, but you all, she also didn't take any shit from anyone. So she, you know, she was someone that taught me to work hard, to be respectful and to just stay in your lane. And I think because I was raised with someone like that and then someone like my mother who um, she's tough, but she's also like one of the kindest human beings that I've ever known. And she's like she gives so much of herself. So when you have that kind of coupling, um, I think that is the definition of a badass woman because it's not shying away from your vulnerability is accepting it and knowing it and owning it, um, but also being able to walk into a room and know that no one is going to tell you what you can or cannot do, uh, but still know your limitations. And I think just growing around seeing so many different personalities of women, but the the strong focus of them all for me was, yeah, we will go through heavy, dark things, but that doesn't mean that it's going to stay like that. And we're not going to hinder ourselves with that. We're going to learn from that. We're going to move on. Okay. And that's... And so as you think about um, sort of this this transition into sort of the career that you've selected for yourself, just um, help us understand a little bit about what the early choices were like mm. and how you have sort of navigated the, 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 the valleys and the, the, yeah. the, the mountains. Yes. And what does that look like now for you? Yeah, so it's interesting when I get the question about, you know, what are your goals or what what has influenced your decisions? Because for me, my life has, and many other people's lives, and everyone probably, nothing is linear. Especially for someone that has so many interests and passions and loves. Um, I mean, my accident was definitely something that catalyzed and catapulted my interest in the health sector field. Um, the field of rehabilitation and what does it mean for wellness and to be healthy and uh, to take ownership of your body. And I think that is why I decided I'm going to be an athletic trainer because I was so influenced and impacted by my athletic trainer from high school that that was something that I committed to and I studied that at the University of Miami. Uh, I got my Bachelor's of Science in Education in Athletic Training and then as I got more into the practical and clinical sense of that field, I was really interested in performing arts medicine because I felt this was a population of people that not only needed it and understood their body, but that were underserved in it. You know, it was kind of like, you're an artist, not an athlete. You have to perform as opposed to you are both. How can we help? one side, your physical aspect, to assist the artistic creative component. So I got into that. I interned with the Radio City Rockettes and the and Lord of the Dance. 
which was amazing. And I worked like every cheer and dance competition under the sun at um, World Wild Sports in Orlando. And that's when I thought to myself, if I'm going to do performing arts medicine, I need to move to a city that that's where it's all about, which was New York, um, with grand hopes to maybe work in partnership with a ballet or Broadway. Um, I've dreamt as big as Cirque du Soleil. Um, and I went to NYU Harkness Dance Center for a workshop where I kind of got a glimpse of what that field could be like for me. And I quickly started to realize that because I wasn't a dancer, it was going to be very, very difficult for me to get in, even though I had the same credentials and the same expertise and knowledge that everyone else had there, except I didn't dance for, you know, New York City Ballet or Chicago Ballet. And I was like, okay, this is going to be very tough for me uh, to crack into. But I, I persisted with it. And then, you know, I also started at, at this point, I'm at Columbia University getting my master's in exercise physiology because I wanted to also really, really understand the body physiologically. Um, for me, I'm, oh, I've always been someone that needs to get to the root of something to feel like I really, really hone in on it and have a grasp on it. So I went into that, which was not athletic training. I didn't do a standard graduate assistantship and I kind of paved my own way. And then I'm like, okay, Alyssa, well, we are a semester in and we're living in New York city and we don't have a job. So we need to do that. And I started obesity research at, um, St. Luke's at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And that was great, but it was also an instant that I could not do the clinic. I was, I was not someone that wanted to do, you know, standard research and sit in front of data and analyzing it, but it was a great experience. You know, I, I got to be involved in a huge research um, that involved a metabolic chamber that there's only four in the world. And I got to assist with that. So that was amazing. But it also was something that was a hard pass. Mm -hmm. So my friend became a personal trainer uh, just to supplement his living. And I was like, okay, I miss being active. Why don't we do a barter system? I will teach you and assist you with how to deal with clientele and how to program and you will train me and I will be trained. So that's what we did. And then it slowly became that we were just working out every day and the fitness manager at the time of that studio was like, Alyssa, do you want to get paid to do this? And I was like, to do what? To be a personal trainer. And I had never thought that because so much of my undergrad career was making the delineation of what a personal trainer was and what an athletic trainer was. And they weren't the same. It was always us battling like we're athletic trainers, not personal trainers. And here I was going to be a personal trainer <laughs> with my athletic training <laughs> certification. So but at the end of that, that really helped my business because mm -hmm. I had that certification I didn't really have to seek clients. People just came to me. They mm -hmm. were like, she knows basically how to program to not only rehabilitate my injuries, but also 
facilitate any compensations so that and now I'm getting stronger but also getting fixed at the same time so it was like so that's the real fundamental difference between a personal trainer and and an athletic trainer right there's actual physiological um, assessments that need to be considered yes so an athletic trainer is someone who is working predominantly with an athletic population but um, it is preventative it's probably the only healthcare profession that's preventative because we take a body and we go through certain assessments and screenings and see how you naturally move and tell you, oh, your glute med is very weak. So that could eventually lead to an ACL mm-hmm. or, you know, just like we kind of are like detectives. A personal trainer prescribes a training protocol, mm-hmm. exercises. We prescribe athletic trainers typically prescribe more rehabilitative, corrective, functional movements. Um, And when you combine those, it's amazing because now I could safely get you stronger, fitter, healthier, uh, as opposed to just beating you down to the ground, making you sweat, uh, which not all personal trainers do, but we do see that. And um, so I'm now a personal trainer. Never thought that I would be a personal trainer, but here I am, rocking and rolling, loving it. I'm loving the aspect of seeing a client, like, at a baseline and then making an assessment six weeks later and seeing how different they are. And it also opened so many doors to different kinds of people because when I was an athletic trainer, I predominantly worked with either athletes or dancers. Mm-hmm. Um, as a personal trainer, I'm working with, you know – people that design sets for Broadway and the Oscars and doctors and fashion designers and models and Mm -hmm. actors. And it was just like, you know, a whole new world. Mm -hmm. And especially in New York City, it's like the creme de la crop there. Mm -hmm. It's it's insane. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that really facilitated a lot of other opportunities that I never thought would be my thing. Um, But because in New York City... Uh, fitness is such a niche and such a clicky, not a clicky, but it's it's kind of, if you make it in that circle, you're pretty successful. So I knew that I had to step up my marketing and my PR for myself. So that's when I did like an Instagram social media overhaul of just kind of flaunting that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when the images of, of you start to to show up and they are beautiful thank you thank you Um, so uh where can we find Alyssa Esposito (laughs) yes so you can find me on Instagram and Facebook Instagram it's just my name nothing special uh yet but it's Alyssa A-L-Y-S-S-A period Esposito Mm -hmm. E-X-P-O-S-I-T-O and those images ultimately led you to a spread in um, self magazine or uh... so all of that kind of content because that's like the you know the it word content got me an interview with the North Face and I think that catapulted me into becoming a North Face fitness coach mm-hmm. um, and then beca- and North Face is what the North Face brand ah oh, oh okay. yes mm-hmm. which was really interesting because. Being from South Florida, I didn't really know what the North Face was. So mm-hmm. th- my interview was like, okay, so what could you tell us about the North Face? And I was like, to be honest, I only know what it is because I went to UM and a lot of students there are from the Northeast. Mm-hmm. But other than that, 
I've never had to use mm-hmm. <laughs> the product. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, I then got in contact with the creative director of New York Sports Clubs, which I worked there at the time. And they were like, we love your imagery. Like, we love the way that you present yourself on social media. Can you choreograph our models for a big shoot that we're doing? We're doing a huge campaign. And I was like, that's amazing. Okay, I've never done that before. So here I am at Studio 59 um, uh, by the pier in a massive production set that I have never – I'm sitting there and I'm like – I. I never would have done this if I stayed in Miami. Like I never would have done this if I had stayed in this trajectory X, Y, and Z. But here I am. So I'm rolling with it again. And then all of a sudden they're like, Alyssa, you have to change. We have a shot with you. And I'm like, I'm not a model. And they're like, no, no, no. We we want you in the campaign. So if, if you don't mind. And I'm like, okay, I guess. So here I am just like rolling with these opportunities. I'm just like going with it. Um, and not stunting myself by saying, I've never done this before. I'm not qualified to do this. I'm just going to go and say yes. So I do the shot and sure enough, it ends up being an image that they use as a mural in Williamsburg. So that's like my claim to fame. Like if all else, if and when I have children and they're like, you're not cool. I'm like, I've done my part. Um, Cause I've never, that's massive, but and then after that, um, Muscle and Fitness Hers reached out to me and they were like, we want to do a spread with you for tr- like a very cheesy like ab, mm-hmm. abdominal workout spread. And I was like, okay, all right. I did that. And then um, I had like smaller publications be like, we want to hear your story because then it started to ruminate like, who is this girl? Like, can you believe she's so physically capable? She got hit by a truck. You know, I, I got to be known as that for a bit. Mm-hmm. And then I made sure not to only be known as that. Um, and then after that, Self Magazine would, like, quote me on certain things or have me program. And this past January and February, Self Magazine had me program their New Year's challenge. So it was a four-week challenge where I programmed, you know, the launch of the new year, new Mm -hmm. year, new Mm -hmm. me. Um, And then in February, I came out in Women's Health um, in a beautiful spread that they did on notable women with scars and our testimonies on, you know, overcoming those kinds of adversities and Mm -hmm. how we find confidence in our, you know, scars and Mm -hmm. physical differences. So it's funny because you and I have talked about your scars and you very uh, early on said, those scars are talismans for me. They remind me every day. So just share a little bit about um, why it was important for you to hold on to the scars. So besides the medical implications that it would be to fix my massive scar on my right leg, um, I think the biggest thing for me was to run again. It wasn't how I looked doing it. Um, And it's weird because I, at the time, I was a 16-year-old girl and, you know, you're starting to get involved with boys and so much of your teenage life is is introduced by your physical self at first because that's all you know and that's all the cool kids know and what people perceive you to be. But for me, I was like, this is my leg. 
I have my leg. And I started to introduce this thought that if people did not like it, then I didn't need those people around. Like, it would bother me in the beginning when I would get a lot of stares. Um, But then my perspective shift when I was like, of course they're going to stare, Alyssa. Like, you look fine and you have this scar that's totally different. They're curious. Like, that is a curiosity. So I started to just reframe the things that may have seemed negative about wearing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, it was just a reminder that I survived something that I shouldn't have and I overcame something that literally was like a rug had been pulled underneath me and my foundation was completely shattered. My identity around it was completely shattered. Um, And now I can't remember, which is crazy because, I mean, my left leg looks totally fine, but I can't remember my right leg looking like my left leg. It's almost like this is my leg. This is what I have. And... um, I never wanted to continue to conceal it because I concealed it for a long time with a wrap. But then I felt like that was such a crutch and that wasn't brave of me to keep doing. Um, so I was like, I'm going to rock it and I'm going to show people, especially women, that, you know, just because you're hurtable and just because you see, may seem flawed doesn't make you any less than it doesn't make you any less whole in fact that is so brave for you to do and to be like yes what like what are you looking at (laughs) you know um and I think now I just I act like you know a lot of people almost tell me I didn't even realize you had it and I think it's because I act like I don't need to hide it Mm -hmm. and I think because of that it's kind of like this is me so. so as you think about the, the messaging that you are an educator, you are an athlete or have more aspirations to do more work mm-hmm. in both spheres, what do you want young, younger, <laughs> <laughs> younger women to take away from um, your journey? So... I think the biggest thing, you know, having worked in the fitness community and also knowing what I know and then also being a raging feminist is that if we start thinking less of the body's physical component, how we perceive, how it's perceived to the world, um, then we have so much time to accomplish so much because we start, we're not nitpicking and like, oh my God, how do I look? Do I look fat in this? Do I look, it's, and it's, to me, it always frustrated me working in the fitness community and being like, am I a leader? Am I an influencer? Or am someone who is just perpetrating this kind of thought? Because if you notice, there's so much of marketing for women that it's like, you need to wear these pants because they're slimming. You need to lose five to 10 pounds. We always see that. Or how to get your night routine so that way you look radiant in the morning. And I'm like, where do men see that? Like men don't have that. Men don't have clothes that stipulate a certain way for them to look. And I think through my adversity and overcoming that and still looking flawed and having, you know, all of these scars, what I want younger women women to take away from that is it's how you look like 
really has no bearing on how successful you can be because one, it's how confident do you, are you perceived in whatever work that you're doing? If you are confident, if you have the privilege to create space, how are you assisting other women that don't have that space? How are you encouraging and empowering them to do it for themselves? Because guess what? There's a lot of space for all of us. And I think having worked in certain sectors, you see how it could be a little catty Mm -hmm. at times. A little shaming. A little shaming. Mm -hmm. Um, And how there's... And I and I taught predominantly female because I worked in an all-female studio. And I think for me, what I always saw was not only how women wanted to modify themselves to be smaller instead of taking up space and becoming, like, expansive and bigger. It was always, like, this underlying or omnipresent doubt that I... But, le- but let me ask you a question, Lessa, because on on many levels, you know, A, you're young... Two, you're Latina. <laughs> Three, you're a Miami Latina. How do you message other brown women that this is who we are, this is why we need to be, and here's the tool, here are the tools to help you be? Um, I think for me, it was also a really weird and interesting thing to move to New York and really understand because in Miami most people are Cuban or Latin and then for the first time in my life I really felt like a minority and it was wild because I also I have the privilege of looking not Latina Um, and that was also kind of an interesting thing for me to navigate because I'm here having white women tell me oh but you don't look Cuban like you're not Cuban and I'm or when I do say I'm Cuban, they're like, oh, you're spicy, you're this. And these, and it's having to navigate microaggressions and transgressions, um, but also checking yourself and being like, is this a battle that I have to fight right now? No. If she disrespects me or my dignity in any kind of way, then obviously I would address it in a very respectful way because I do believe that there, even though we're, there's differences, we could still meet in the middle and still be civil. Um, but working in a predominantly white place was, I felt like sometimes I was the token Latina. Um, and then I, with my peers who were other women of color, they're like, do you think that we just get hired to do this because of X, Y, and Z? Um, which is so unfortunate because a lot of times that is the case, you know? Um, and for me, it took a long time to realize I'm not going to make myself small. Like I am not going to, uh, dull my edges to make someone else feel uncomfortable, you know? And I think that message was really spread in the music that I selected. You know, I did get told once and I couldn't believe this. It was like, and I don't even think they meant it. And I think a lot of times when people say things, they don't realize what they're saying until you repeat it. They said, Alyssa, you know, our clients do like music that they understand. And I was like, that's interesting because I played a French song and you guys loved it. And I'm pretty sure you guys don't speak French. And I think for me, I kind of just like took that as they don't really have a lot of criticism to tell me 
So they're going to not attack, but they're going to come after something that they know could be sensitive to me, that could make me almost doubt my identity and self. But I, I was like, no, that's not going to happen. So I'm still going to play 90s hip-hop R&B, and I'm still going to play reggaeton, because guess what? People love the beat. <laughs> and when they're working out, they love the beat. And I think because I was so much of myself and so assertive with myself, women felt that they could be the same. Like they could, they felt comfortable and that they knew that I wasn't the spicy Latina. I was the Cuban from Miami who has so much of her home that she misses and she's going to bring to New York City. And I think um, just really owning your identity and um, not reacting, but responding to how people say things. Just drill down a little bit because you, you were really clear about selecting those two words not reacting, but responding. And I think that those are really precise. Yes. So share with me the precision of your thinking. So I think in reacting, especially being a Latina, Cuban Latina from Miami, I think a lot of the stereotypes would be like, oh, she is going to spit fire, you know, um, and be a little bit more... What's the word? I wouldn't say aggressive because I feel like you could be aggressive in a positive way. But when I respond, when you respond to something, you are taking what someone has said, letting it ruminate before you kind of just spit right back something that could potentially get you in trouble. Um, And I think a lot of beings, we have this autopilot thing to react as opposed to respond. We take so much of what people say personally as opposed to, no, this person is just meeting me where they've met themselves. Maybe you do not know the history of Cuba. Maybe you do not know the history of Nigeria. So, yes, you would probably say some stereotypical biased things. But guess what? That's totally fine. I'm going to listen to what you have to say. And I'm going to counteract that by saying, I hear you. But this is how I'm going to educate you on how that could be perceived wrong. And um, and also being confident in that. And I think a lot of times in that reacting and responding, women especially lose themselves because they almost not we are almost like taught without even knowing that we're taught to subconsciously invalidate our feelings because it's always like, oh, women are more emotional. Women are more erratic. Women like to, are, you know, they have all this rage. And for me, it's like, no, we're not really any different. It's um, you, I, I have been socialized and I've internalized so much of, of what the world has told me to be that, of course, I had to unlearn and undo so much of my reactions and change them into responses. So um, I think being mindful is what makes that delineation, really. It's just being mindful of how my words, my actions, my behaviors not only affect me and my well-being, but how does that affect a room? How does that affect a person, Um, even when there's differences? Because there's no way it's always going to be on the same page, so... Beautiful. So the 30 things. Mm. 
So it's our it's our special uh, opportunity to provide a template, a map of sorts um, for young women or younger women who are still trying to find a voice, find the version of themselves to be consumed. Mm-hmm. So which of our 30 things, and um, you know, we've talked a little bit about that, but share a little bit about the, the 30 thing or the 30 things. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really hard to choose just one from the list because I feel like even now so many of them apply to me and I feel like especially in my transition into what my job is now have like really impacted me in some way but one of them was perfection I think it's perfection don't do it and I think there was another one that really stood out to me was even if you don't meet the qualifications apply for the job um and I think they kind of go hand in hand because like I was saying about uh, being socialized and internalized and like all of of what women are, are growing up to believe about themselves and about their competence and their abilities. Um, for me, growing up, it was always to be perfect and good. Like what can I do to satisfy all of these boxes and to make sure that everyone around me is happy. It was like, I'm last. Um, And then it was to overly prepare for things that I may not have even worked up to yet. So it was always like never being in the moment, but also never feeling like I was prepared for the future. So it was kind of like I existed. I didn't really live. I just like existed and I, I did my thing. Um, and I never got a sense of, like, satisfaction, like self-satisfaction. So for me, going to New York and then having done everything that I did was a huge testament in, one, that perfection doesn't exist, and two, there is no job that you will have all of the qualifications for. And there's this book called The Confidence Code by Katie Kay, who she goes, I mean, it's well-researched, but there's one part that really stood out to me that was like, men will look at a job description and they will only have one qualification and still apply for the job, thinking that they have it in the bag. A woman will have all nine of the 10 things and not apply for the job because she doesn't think that she will get it. And... To me, I was like, wow, how much of my life has been hindered because of that one thing that I feel like I don't possess? Instead of saying, all of these nine things will help me get that one thing, and I will show you that. So moving back to Miami, I was like, how am I going to go from a personal trainer to working, you know, administratively at a place? Like, I've never had that job, Um, but... I think because my background is so dynamic, so diverse, I was like, there's no job that I can't do, to be honest. Like, I feel like I have certain skill sets, confidence, um, interpersonal skills, social emotional intelligence that if I and I know how to read. (laughs) So if I read policy and procedure and I was gifted like a week for a learning curve, 
that I would, you know, nail it. Uh, granted, I wouldn't go into surgery, but, um, you know, th- there's just, I, I, I kind of was my own hype woman in that sense and came to Miami and applied for almost every job under the sun at the U. And it was great because in that experience, my resume floated into so many different departments and people were like, we don't have a position, but she's great here. Take her resume you should hire her. And that's really how I landed my job. Um, And it was just felt so full circle because not only did I graduate from the University of Miami, but I also graduated through the School of Education and Human Development. And now I'm advising the programs that I graduated from. So yeah, I think for women, it's one, perfection doesn't exist and be confident in the skill sets you have and don't let the ones that you think don't have that you think you don't have deter you from just going for it anyways because com- that's what confidence is it isn't faking it till you make it it's knowing it despite the hardships that could follow um, i do have one uh, last question when i said to you that we were going to do something called the badass women's network you said i love that yes <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> Tell me what you think a badass woman actually is and why I'm either crazy to pursue this or this is going to this is going to fly. So, one I was honored to be asked because I think that you are a badass and I have respected Bless you. you for that. Yeah, and I've respected you for so long that I was like she wants a conversation with me. Um so that was amazing. And then when you told me about it, I was like, "Yes, this is I felt I came from a place in New York that it was so badass women. Like they were, there's so many networks and coalitions and organizations of badass women that I felt like Miami needs more of that. You know, Miami needs a leader, a fearless leader to be like, guess what? Let's get together. Let's do this. Um, So I think a badass woman is someone who, like I said, steps into her truth, even if that truth could be ugly. It is kind of someone who could sit with herself, doesn't shadow box her bullshit by, you know, saying, oh, this always happens to me. It's like, okay, really analyzes and assesses why the same things happen. Um, How does she mitigate that? It's not someone who is passive in her life. Um, I don't think a badass woman complains. And if she does, she vents for two seconds. It's like, how are we going to change that? Um, I also think a badass woman is someone who has the confidence, again, to show her vulnerabilities and isn't shying away from that as a way to seem stronger or as a way to seem like she isn't hurtable. As someone that's saying, guess what? I am human, but I could take my humanness and I could empower other people in owning all of that and doesn't really let the words bitch or bossy deter her because guess what? I find that now it's they're almost like terms of endearment because a productive woman, a successful woman, sometimes has to be those two things. And you know what? If I'm told that, then I'm doing something right. So <laughs> get over it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So Alyssa Esposito, thank you so much for being such an amazing 
conversationalist for <laughs> sharing uh, what's been, I think, one of the most extraordinary journeys I've encountered in my hundred million years of life on oh. this. True, true, truth for that. And um, I'm incredibly grateful. Yes, I'm incredibly grateful that you're starting this, and I'm so excited to see what happens. And thank you for having me. All righty, there we go. I'm over. I